is an Odyssey original. This is KNX In-Depth. I'm Mike Simpson. And I'm Charles Feldman. On the menu for today's show, the January 6th attack on the Capitol and the events that led to it are now being called legitimate political discourse. Now, that's not coming from a fringe group. It's straight from the Republican National Committee. The committee voted to censure two House Republicans, Liz Cheney and Adam Kissinger, for taking part in the House investigation of the attack. In doing so, the RNC says the two were participating in persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. We'll go in depth into what happens next with this. The White House press secretary got into it with reporters over what actually happened when the ISIS leader was killed in that U.S. military raid. Can we trust the government to tell us the truth? And Russia and China are now uniting against what they think of as a common foe, the U.S. Facebook has taken a big hit, not just the stock price, but the popularity. We'll look into whether Facebook just isn't cool anymore. Get ready for no air conditioning. Talking about cool when a summer heat hits California. New study on how vitamin D can help fight off the worst of COVID. And then the Coliseum hosting its first ever NASCAR race. They put that track inside. So we'll talk about that. <laughs> OK, let's start, though, with the RNC, Republican National Committee, and the January 6th attack. With us now is Scott McFarland, the congressional correspondent for CBS News. Scott, uh, thanks for being with us. Interesting developments today. Let's first take uh, what the Republican National Committee did and said. It's pretty extraordinary and does fly in the face of what everyone can see with their plain eyes. Yeah, Charles and Mike, they did this at a convention or a conference in Salt Lake City. And they did this by voice vote. They censured Adam Kinzinger and Liz Cheney, not in a, you know, strung out, provocative, you know, roll call. They did this almost passively in a, in a roll, in a um, you know, voice vote earlier today. But it was the statement from the RNC chairwoman that you quoted from that is so striking, especially at this moment, in which she explained this vote this censure resolution saying that the congresswoman, Ms. Cheney, the congressman, Mr. Kinzinger, crossed a line, that they chose to join Nancy Pelosi in the persecution of ordinary citizens engaged in legitimate political discourse. Congresswoman Cheney immediately posted on social media videos from January 6th of some of the most grueling hand-to-hand combat saying this was not political discourse, not legitimate That being said, Ms. Cheney has been punching back at the RNC through the week. Yesterday, she had a statement saying, I don't recognize those in my party who've abandoned the Constitution to embrace Donald Trump. But Charles and Mike, what's most salient to me at this moment is minutes after the RNC vote, the former vice president spoke in Orlando about January 6th with a message quite different than the RNC's, saying that President Trump believed that he had the power to overturn the election. The former vice president said President Trump is wrong. The presidency belongs to the American people. There was another line that Mike Pence used as well, saying there's more at stake here than our political fortunes, our party's future, or or something along those lines, paraphrasing, which is a very kind of Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger statement, because we've heard that from them before, looking at the others in their party saying, you know what, there are things we need to stick together on, but This is not one of them when we're trying to figure out, you know, the truth. That's why the two of us are on this committee. And all this comes to a head again 
later this year when there's a primary in the state of Wyoming for that House seat. It happens August 16th. Will Liz Cheney prevail against a candidate from her own party, or will she take a shellacking in August in her primary? Uh, this issue is going to come up again. Adding Kinzinger, of course, is retiring, won't face the voters again. But also, you know, the, as other candidates from California through here in D.C. face primaries, Republican Party primaries over the coming months, what positions do they take on January 6th? Do they have to outflank other Republicans by being sympathetic, if not supportive, to what the RNC did today? Of course, this was the uh, Republican National Committee. Do you get a sense uh, in Washington about congressional Republicans? Uh, do they echo what the committee is, is saying, or do they say other things when they speak quietly, perhaps, in more hushed tones? Well, that's a very good question. Two different questions there. First of all, by the dozen, Republicans in the House Republican Conference do express support for the message the RNC put forward today. And those who are most vocal saying January 6th was a protest or an otherwise tourist visit have had success fundraising after saying that. And they've also yielded support in their districts from the Republican base. Do they say things differently quietly or in private? You know, any number of members have told us that <laughs> they hear different things behind closed doors, but that's where it is. It's behind closed doors, not for the public to consume it. So at this moment in Congress, in the House Republican Conference, there are dozens of members who are still supportive of the former president and his messaging on January 6th. We saw that on January 6th, when by the dozen, they voted to block or challenge the, the electoral college count. We've seen that since with a handful of members who even voted against the congressional gold medal awards for Capitol police officers. There is this small caucus inside the party, even in Congress, that continues to challenge what happened January 6th and the way it's been communicated to the country. Scott McFarland, congressional correspondent for CBS News. Reporters got into it with White House Press Secretary uh, Jen Psaki over the reliability of information provided by the U.S. military on a raid that resulted in the death of the leader of ISIS. President Biden says the leader exploded a bomb that killed himself and family members. A reporter asking if there was evidence of that and later saying the U.S. has not been straightforward about civilian deaths. With us is Dan Blakely, a special ops Army Ranger veteran and co-author of the 20-year war. Dan, thanks for being with us. So uh, the reporter asking that question, uh, does she have a point that there is some history that would indicate that uh, the U.S. government has not been exactly uh, forthcoming when it comes to civilian deaths in uh, military theaters? Yeah, I think it's it's an okay question to ask. Um, the one thing that I will say about this specific operation, though, and the way that things are reported, is typically when you have a uh, high-value target like we did with uh, this ISIS leader, um, uh, Haji Abdullah, he, uh, you know, we don't typically try to release all information, and it's largely to protect um, the tactics, techniques, and procedures that are happening on the ground. Um, also, with a lot of these raids, oftentimes there's a lot of violence of action. So you're trying to move as quickly as possible through the compound to, you know, clear everybody out. From what it sounds like, uh, they were using a very common tactic that I'm, I'm not going to get into, but 
Um, they were able to, able to get some people out. Unfortunately, Haji, Haji Abdullah uh, detonated something. It sounds like a suicide vest or a bomb. Uh, and I'm hearing the same thing from some of my friends that are still, um, you know, tied into the to the organization. Yeah, and I think people can understand that, right? That we're not going to know everything when it comes to these types of operations. But in terms of what the White House and Jen Psaki, when they got into it with the reporter, and you know, there was another issue with the State Department, and it kind of became this us versus them thing is at least how you know the officials were talking about. Oh, you don't believe us? You're, you're going to believe ISIS? Well, that's not the comparison that, that you know these reporters are trying to make it's that you know we don't want it to become a situation where it's like well this is the government and we say it's true so then it's true yeah absolutely i think again um every reporter has a has an opportunity and and uh um to ask those tough questions of the administration and the people that the spokespeople for the administration um you know it could be a case of they just didn't know and they're protecting themselves or uh, something did happen, but in this case, I truthfully don't believe that's the case. I know in a lot of airstrikes and things that have happened in the past, especially the one uh, that happened against the ISIS cell or supposed ISIS cell in Afghanistan, it took many days for the administration to come out and say that it was in fact against a bunch of civilians and they ended up killing a bunch of civilians. Um, so I, I understand the reluctance and the pressure to push on the administration to give uh, more details. Although, you know, it isn't, as you know, necessarily necessarily uh, a black and white thing, because sometimes, and I think it may even involve the case you were just citing, sometimes it's the case where the administration may not know the actual answer because they're being told something by the Pentagon, and the Pentagon may be being told something by the people in the field. And when you finally look into all of that, it turns out that perhaps the facts are different than what they appeared to be at first. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, typically, again, in these operations, there is a, a very thorough investigation, even with the operators that are on the ground. Everybody who had eyes on the objective or was involved in any, any sort of uh, any sort of action. Typically, if, if there is a loss of life, there is a full on investigation internally uh, to get sworn statements and, and firsthand accounts of exactly what happened so that they could piece it together. That takes some time, and I, I understand the inability to report on something that they may not have all the facts on yet. Dan Blakely, Special Ops Army Ranger veteran, co-author, The 20-Year War. Dan, thanks. Coming up, climate change could prevent people from using their air conditioners on a hot, sweltering, disgusting summer day here in California. I know. Looking. Really Can't looking wait. forward to that, yeah. And vitamin D might be a big key to fighting off a bad COVID infection. Right now, though, Russia and China use the opening day of the Winter Olympics to declare this strategic partnership to balance what they say is the global influence of us, of the U.S. Two countries affirmed their new relationship was superior to any political or military alliance of the Cold War era. Chris Miller, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. Chris, thanks for being with us. So they're saying, uh, yeah, no limits, no forbidden areas of cooperation, which sounds big. Do we actually expect it to be like that? Well, there's certainly a trend over the past 20 or so years of Russia and China getting closer and closer together. And the meeting uh, yesterday between Xi Jinping and Vladimir Putin is is the culmination of this trend. The two countries still don't have an alliance. There are some things they disagree on, but it's undeniable they're cooperating more today than at any point in the past half century. Yeah, and, and didn't uh, Putin yesterday put out a statement that supports uh, 
China, China's claim that Taiwan is a, a part of mainland China, and it, wouldn't that then allow the, the Chinese to count on the, the Russians to, uh, or rather the, uh, Mr. Putin, to count on the Chinese to back what might be his claim that Ukraine belongs to Russia? I think that's right. And the Chinese also endorsed Russia's view of the current crisis in Eastern Europe, saying that uh, NATO and the United States were at fault and that Russia needs security guarantees for the United States. And especially for Putin, who faces this crisis right now that he's created, this meeting was particularly important to show that he's got China on his side and that China has his back in case there is some sort of escalation between uh, Russia and Ukraine. I guess the question is, you know, how thick and thin or just thin is it in practice, though? Because if there is some sort of actual conflict for Ukraine or for Taiwan, does the other one really come through and, and, and back them up? Or is it just look good on paper and bolster things right now as they're posturing? You know, it's pretty clear that there's going to be no military aid from either side to the other in case one of them gets in a conflict. But there's also a lot of things they can do to help each other below military aid. For example, they sell each other military equipment. That's meaningful. They support each other economically. And just today announced a new energy deal whereby Russia is going to sell gas to China. That's meaningful. They also vote alongside each other at the United Nations and in other international bodies and try to derail the agenda that the U.S. and its allies try to push. So there's lots of different spheres in which their cooperation does matter, even though they don't have a full-blown military alliance. So how concerned should we be? Well, I think we have to be concerned. The challenge is that there's not much we can do for both Russia and China. They're convinced that uh, the United States is the greatest limitation on their desire to increase their power in the international sphere. And so long as they're focused on degrading our power and making themselves stronger at our expense, uh, there's no hope really of splitting the two countries apart from each other. Well, it's, uh, you know, them versus us, but then also what we can extend it to, to the West or NATO or, or even non-authoritarian regimes. Well, that was one of the most interesting parts of the joint statement that she and Putin uh, released after their meeting was trying to redefine what democracy means uh, and saying that, in fact, unlike the West and European countries and America's friends around the world that claim to be the real democracies, in fact, Russia and China have the better definition of what is a democracy, which was, they say, shaped by their historical and cultural characteristics. It's interesting. The usual stuff you hear from them, but the fact that they've got this sort of joint campaign to redefine democracy, I think, is uh, something new. Yeah, I wonder uh, if the U.S. didn't make a mistake with this diplomatic uh, boycott of the Olympics, because wouldn't it have been a stronger statement uh, with Putin being there in, in China if uh, President Biden were there, too, to express the opposing viewpoint? Well, you know, I, I think that there's good reasons for the U.S. to be skeptical of showing up at the Olympics, especially given how China has used the Olympics for propaganda purposes domestically and internationally. Uh, I don't think there's any reason the U.S. should uh, try to involve itself in that type of a show. Chris Miller there, director of the Foreign Policy Research Institute's Eurasia program. This is KNX In-Depth. Mike Simpson and Charles Feldman. Facebook seems to be falling out of favor with uh, more and more people. Maybe it's just not as cool as it used to be. Hmm. The quarterly earnings report from parent company Meta revealing that uh, or Meta uh, revealed that Facebook lost daily users for the first time in its 18-year history. It lost about half a million 
users in the past three months of 2021. With us is Karen North, digital and social media expert. She's also the founder and former director of USC Annenberg's digital social media program. Karen, thanks for being with us. So is is Facebook sort of like, you know, yesterday's thing? Well, I mean, you know, keep in mind when we talk about meta, we're talking about Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp and a variety of things. But yes, Facebook as a social media platform is sort of the nightclub that used to have the cool kids and now has the cool kids' parents and grandparents. <laughs> oh, so sad for them. Um, but, I mean, we, we, we knew this was going to happen, right? There's always something that's coming up, and it was Instagram, and then Facebook bought Instagram, and then TikTok is where the younger people are now. But also in terms of, like, worldwide reach, aren't they running out? They're reaching that saturation point because they were always expanding to other countries, and they've kind of gotten around the world, and, and that's, that's what they've got. I, you know, I agree with you. That hasn't really been much of the talk. People are looking for deeper meaning, but it is true that at some point you have, you, you know, you you reach a ceiling in terms of the number of people you can onboard to a um, digital platform. Um, but Facebook and you know, and now Meta, they're they're sort of like the Madonna or Justin Bieber, where they keep reinventing themselves <laughs> in ways that draw people in again. Um, so now is it really about Facebook? Because that's what we're hearing about. But it, like I said, they've got so many other things going on that engage broader and broader audiences. Do you think, though, that that loss is just because of a generational shift or is it because there have been, there's been so much bad news about Facebook and where your information goes? Has that been just turning a lot of people off? I think that there are so many, this is, I I described this to um, some students the other day as sort of the perfect storm of problems for, uh, for Meta or for Facebook, because they had the disappointing, you know, quarterly disclosure statements. And then they also have um, the end, somewhat end of the pandemic where people are out in the world, not on social media as much. And then they also have what I think is really a critical blow to them, which is the um, iPhone or the Apple uh, you know, Apple has created a thing where you can um, stop apps from tracking, um, you know, tr- like it's an ad tracker blocker, right? And so that's become a critical problem for them in terms of their ability to collect data and then use it either for ads or for just curating an experience for us. So I think that they're having more and more trouble in general, but it's a perfect storm of problems hitting them. Yeah, and they've been talking about how much money they're going to lose because people keep, um, you know, selecting the no, don't track me option when they're presented with the option. Um, are they also worried that whatever gains they can make with Instagram still being, you know, pretty popular or with WhatsApp or if they make some changes, it's not going to offset that base user base, base user base for for Facebook itself. If that keeps falling, you know, you can't make the ground on the others. And I guess all the investors are going to watch Instagram now, too, because if Instagram starts to slide, then yeah. here goes some more trouble. And Instagram has its own problems because Instagram has been sort of genius in their ability to reverse engineer the um, really engaging uh, features and options elsewhere. They reverse engineered a bunch of stuff from Snapchat and then from TikTok. And right now, if you look at the engage, the most engaging issues for or activities for um, Instagram, it's really Reels, which is essentially TikTok. Um, but it's very hard to get revenue generated from Reels because if you're watching a very brief, you know, five second or ten second video, where do you put the ads? So they're having their own trouble if they they can generate that, but it's still in terms of their quarterly financial disclosures, um, they they can't show a lot of profit from it or the kind of profit that people would like because they're they're handicapped on 
their um, ability to make money on it. So to go back to your earlier uh, nightclub analogy, does Facebook just remain as like the place for people who flock to see, I don't know, like Paul Anka? <laughs> um, yeah, I was going to make the same joke. Um, no, so, no um, offense to Paul Anka, by the way. Exactly, but, exactly. I, wanted to my, I was going to say um, uh, Barry Manilow. Um, okay, that, I'll, I'll take that. <laughs> who also, no offense to Barry Manilow, right? Amazing. So um, here's the thing, my take on the uh, future of Facebook, and by the way, I think this was my take on the future of Facebook 10 years ago, or maybe almost 15 years ago, is that what they've done so successfully is they've become, you know, not quite a utility, but something that's basically a utility. They've become our global address book. We can find people we've drifted away from, people we used to know, and they've become our photo album. So from us to our parents, to our grandparents, to our children, to our grandchildren, um, they, they host or they, you know, they store our photos and allow us to tag and connect and share so that we have shared experiences archived on their platform. So between that and the address book, they've become a valuable asset for most of us just to stay in touch with people and to maintain pictures of our lives. Yeah. Karen North there, digital social media expert, also founder, former director, USC Annenberg social media program. That's actually the reason I still have Snapchat on the phone. I don't yeah. use it, but I have a bunch of saved Snapchat pictures in the gallery that that's, I just I keep it around. And by the way, just to be clear, I thought of Paul Anka because I actually heard something. He's doing some show somewhere. He's a very talented guy. You're, not, so, you're worried about getting letters. Well, I don't, I don't want... Paul Anka to send me like a nasty email or, or, or something like that. Can you imagine? <laughs> well, All he, caps. He probably wouldn't be near. He would probably send an actual letter, is my guess. Well, it's cooler now, but think about those hot summer days. At least you can get a break when you turn on your air conditioning, but what if you couldn't? New study finds climate change could cause people here to lose air conditioning for about a week each summer because the demand will exceed the capacity of the electrical grid. Renee Obringer is an environmental engineer at Penn State University, lead author of the study. Renee, thanks for being here. So uh, how far out are we from this? Because it doesn't sound comfortable. Yeah, thanks for uh, having me on. So our study looked at two potential uh, future time periods. One was after we surpassed one and a half degrees uh, Celsius above the pre-industrial levels, and the other was two degrees Celsius. And so the actual years are a bit in fluctuation. A lot of it depends on sort of how uh, fast we can mitigate um, our carbon emissions, but potentially that one and a half degree um, time frame could be the 2030s. So, you know, 10 years from now, potentially seeing these large increases. So what would actually happen? So it, it would be warm or hot, and the electric grid around the country, in many parts of the country anyway, would not be able to keep up with it. So you'd have to either turn your AC off or, worse, you'd have no power at all. Yeah. So what we were uh, looking at is, you know, as it gets warmer, people are going to use more air conditioning. It's one of our primary ways to adapt to extreme heat in, in the modern world. And so if the grid isn't prepared for that spike in demand, often what they do is they try to do rolling blackouts, which uh, we saw in California a couple years ago during the wildfire season where people, the utility was adopting, you know, part of the city went off for three hours and then a new part of the city. Um, and so during these extreme heat things, that's 
genuinely what the the grid does. And so if we continue to see these spikes and our research is showing that they'll get much worse and we're not adapting our grid to manage that, then it's likely that we'll see even more prolonged blackouts. Now, is this a California thing because we've got problems with the grid or we do rolling blackouts sometimes? Or, you know, is Texas in the south going to get hit hard, too? It's a countrywide thing. So um, really across the country, our grid is is not prepared for this. And uh, in some places like Texas, the extreme cold is what causes issues. Uh, But really, we're seeing across the country, this demand is going to increase, and it's really going to put pressure on places even like the Midwest, where we haven't uh, traditionally dealt with rolling blackouts. We haven't dealt with these extreme spikes. It really puts us in a vulnerable position. You know, it it does remind me uh, about the pandemic, where for years, experts were warning about the coming of some kind of pandemic, and we just weren't clearly prepared for it. And this is kind of the same thing, isn't it? I mean, we, we all know it's getting hotter. And as per your study, we know that things like air conditioning might be in jeopardy because of that. But what actually are we doing about it? Yeah, so it is, uh, in a lot of ways, very similar. It's sort of something that scientists in general have been aware of and trying to get change. Um, but I do think that we... Um, that there is progress being made. One of the things that uh, we explored in our study is is what if we increase the efficiency of air conditioners? So what if we worked to improve our technology? And we found that in some places, efficient air conditioning efficiency would have to improve by about 8%. But in other places, uh, like California, where they already have fairly um, strict building code for efficiency standards, and it's only about uh, 1% increase in these efficiencies. So there is a possibility there to improve our technology so that we can sort of have a buffer where we can use more air conditioning when it gets hot, but it won't necessarily stress the grid because it won't require as much electricity to to deal with that increase. Do you think this could be a thing that makes some people go, oh, right, this is not just a a worldwide problem or a sea level problem or anything. This is a local problem, too, because this affects me. If climate change means I'm hot and I don't have air conditioning or worse, you know, I get heat sickness because of it. Well, then now I'm starting to realize because it's hitting closer to home. Yeah, yeah, that's um, sort of exactly what we wanted to do with this study is we wanted to look at um, we wanted to get a very broad Views. So that's why we did a chose across the U.S., but we also wanted to see if there was any way to look at these local impacts. And so we found this really interesting survey that actually talks to households across the U.S. and figures out how much electricity they're using for air conditioning. And we were able to use that in our model to see how that uh, amount of electricity might change. And, yeah, we really hope that, you know, if you can bring the impacts of climate change down into a local level and and start thinking about what it means for, you know, yourself or your neighbors or your family, then hopefully that can sort of generate a tangible uh, impact and maybe encourage some more grassroots effort to to try to get some some real policy passed. But when you talk about increasing the efficiency of air air conditioning, even 1%, 
how realistic is it in the next, say, 15 years or so to uh, either retrofit, if you can, existing equipment or convince enough people to dump the old and bring in the new? Yeah, so that's that's something that can and, and has per, um, been a challenge in some places. So, um, And there's also some trade-offs there where if you're trying to get people to get new air conditioners and they have to throw out their old ones, well, those old air conditioners have to go somewhere and they usually end up in a landfill or, or worse. And so there definitely is some trade-offs there. And I think that it is a real policy challenge to try to get these um, efficiency improvements passed and then also roll them out in a way that is equitable and also the sort of optimal way in terms of environmental impact. Um, We didn't look into how we might pass these policies, but it's definitely something that needs to be looked into. Renee Obringer, environmental engineer, Penn State University. Renee, thanks. This is KNX In-Depth. He's Mike Simpson. I'm Charles Feldman. When you think of the Coliseum, what comes to mind? Maybe the Olympics or football, the Rams, USC, the Raiders. First Super Bowl was played at the Coliseum. Famous place. Yeah, but you don't think about car racing. But it's happening this Sunday. The first ever NASCAR race will be held inside the stadium. A quarter-mile track was built for the Bush Light Clash. It looks pretty cool. It, it does. And before the, before the break, you you have a really good sound oh, effect. Meow. That's how they, you're going to be sitting That's there. Meow. Meow. There they go. Yeah. With us now is Bob Pockris, who's the NASCAR is, reporter for Fox we News. We got to L.A., folks. Yeah, he's yeah. at the Coliseum right now. Bobby, I bet you you can't do a sound effect as good as Mike, can you? I don't know. I've been practicing them a lot. And I, I just, <laughs> room. How's that? that, that uh, That's not bad. That's that not bad. Is better. That's not I like bad. This. All right. <laughs> so why are they doing this inside? <laughs> because they can. Okay. Because they apparently yeah. have millions to spend, and they wanted to do a spectacle. They wanted to see if they can do this, and if it runs well, they can come back here and do it again, or they can go somewhere else. They could go to another stadium and even maybe potentially internationally. So this is a big experiment for NASCAR to see if they can put a bunch of bisqueen and plywood down on top of a field, putting, bring in 500 loads of dirt and then put four inches of asphalt on top of it and run a race. So how's it going to work? I mean, it's got to be fewer cars, right? Because you can't fit everybody. And the thing's only like a, a, like we said, a quarter mile track, right? Yeah, it's quarter mile track bank, just two and a half degrees. Uh, the main event will have 23 cars on it. So they're going to do heat races of about nine cars apiece. There'll be uh, last chance kind of qualifying races of about nine cars apiece. And then the main event will be 23 cars. And we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, there's a lot of unknown. And the thing is, it's an exhibition race. So they hope that the drivers have a lot of fun and hope the fans do too. Are, are there different safety considerations doing this indoors? Uh, well, you know, as far as the temporary track, they've put what they call safer barrier. They had extra safer barrier from uh, from the track that they own in Fontana. They brought that over. They have catch fencing that they brought over from the Long Beach Grand Prix uh, to put up. So they feel good about uh, about that. The maximum speed here, when you're not in, when you're not trying to lap somebody, will probably be 
just somewhere around 80 miles per hour, which is pretty, which is much slower than, you know, like at Daytona, they're going closer to 190 to 200 miles per hour. So I think they feel pretty good about this from a safety aspect. How else is it going to change the driving for the drivers and trying to, you know, maneuvering and all that? Because it's a whole different consideration when you're on this kind of a thing. And, you know, we are experimenting here. Yeah, I think the thing is that the drivers don't have never been on this track before. There's no real, I mean, they've tried to do some simulation programs to try to get them in a racing simulator and try to, to figure it out. But I think it's going to be a learning process for the drivers. They have some practice on Saturday before their heat races on Sunday, and it's just going to be learning. They're going to have to decide how close can they get uh, to, the, uh, to, the, to the apron and the turns and exactly how they cut those turns for maximum momentum off the corners. You almost wonder why they didn't do this before. <laughs> I think, you know, NASCAR is, has got a little bit of, you know, look, they, they know that their schedule had been stagnant for, for many, many years. And they're looking for ways to boost interest. And they decided that they were going to spend some money. You know, they're talking well over a million dollars, probably in the millions of dollars to convert the facility here. And I think they they view it as a way to try to generate interest in the sport. You know, try to generate interest here in downtown Los Angeles where, you know, where, where they don't race. You know, normally they race and they will race in a few weeks out in Fontana. But to be able to do a race here... Uh, you know, a week before the Super Bowl is a big deal to them. When you got there today and you, you walked out there and you, you saw it, what was going through your head? <laughs> uh, what was going through my head is like, wow, that this they're really going to try to race on this track that <laughs> uh, that the drivers, I said the drivers are going to have to probably rub some fenders to uh, to get past each other. And, uh, and I think I also thought, man, I'm glad this is an exhibition race for all the guys who, might be just not have no clue of what they're doing <laughs> when they get on the facility. All right, that's uh, Bob Pockers, a NASCAR reporter, Fox Sports. And and if you're not there to witness it, uh, it'll sound pretty much like what? Like, like he did it. No, no, I like his better. No, I like yours But mine's like yeah. Not like yours sounds more like speed. You know, it depends. It's all you know where you're. Yeah, well, but I like yours. We should get more sound effects installed. <laughs> Like from what? <laughs> so I can, you know, they'll probably turn it off after like a day. <laughs> I know. Exactly. the buttons. Like, so. Okay. That's it. enough of that. Yeah, take that away from him. Yeah. Well, another bad milestone in the pandemic. Johns Hopkins University numbers now show the COVID death toll in the U.S. hitting 900,000, actually a little bit more than 900,000. Now, that's less than two months after eclipsing 800,000. COVID-19 has become one of the three top leading causes of death in America behind heart disease and cancer. Comes as a new study out of Israel makes a correlation between vitamin D deficiency and COVID severity. Vitamin D deficient patients 14 times more likely to have a severe or a critical case of COVID than those uh, who weren't deficient. Dr. Michael Hertz, director of the Center for Integrative Medicine in Tarzana, has been speaking out since uh, the pandemic began about the benefits of vitamin D. Uh, So, doctor, thanks for being here. Uh, This seems to make a, a pretty convincing case. Remind us why vitamin D is so important. Well, vitamin D is definitely more than just a vitamin. It actually is referred to in physiology as a hormone. And it affects nearly every risk factor that we have for the diseases that really affect us and take us out of the party. Things like heart disease risk goes up when your vitamin D is low. Uh, Cancer risk like colon cancer, breast cancer, and prostate cancer risk also go up when your vitamin D is low. 
uh, your risk of dying from any kind of infection uh, increases when your vitamin D levels are low. So we've known this for a long time, and so when we first came and faced this unknown threat of COVID, um, those of us on the front lines were recommending our patients to take vitamin D ahead of time to try and bolster their immune systems and get that hormone level up. So why is it, and, and, and you know, I do remember in the past two years, we've done a number of segments uh, about vitamin D, and you have people that were saying the studies are pretty good, that you should take supplements. Other studies, they said, indicated that they were only significant if you had a deficiency. Why has there been so much controversy about it, and does this Israeli study perhaps put an end to that controversy? Well, the Israeli study helps. It helps a lot because it is specifically dealing with COVID-19, as opposed to many other studies which tell us that vitamin D deficiency puts you at increased risk for many other conditions, which I just listed, including infections. Uh, This one is specific for vitamin D and COVID, and that helps doctors feel more comfortable uh, getting outside of perhaps the lane that they're usually in, which is prescribing drugs, uh, and recommending that their patients take a vitamin. Uh, most doctors are not trained in nutrition or vitamin therapies and may not feel comfortable making that recommendation uh, unless they have a study showing that it's beneficial. The study also goes a little further and tells doctors what those numbers are they need to be looking for in a blood test to ensure that their patients are meeting the criteria of what is sufficient vitamin D and then what is a deficiency of vitamin D. Yeah, are we sure it's a straight, you know, deficiency that was leading to more severe outcomes and and that was the problem? Or can you have other, you know, underlying issues that then lead you to be vitamin D sufficient and then that's the actual problem, you know, if we take it back like two or three steps? You're exactly right. Uh, Many times these factors are intermingled and codependent. So, for example, as you suggested, a unhealthy, unfit, overweight person who doesn't get outside, couch potato, uh, with uh, diabetes and high blood pressure, and recently was told by their cardiologist that they may have had a minor heart attack, this is a person who's likely vitamin D deficient because they're not going to be eating the foods or getting the exercise and the sun exposure that's necessary for having a healthy vitamin D level. And all those factors I just listed are also known factors that make you very high risk for succumbing to an infection like COVID-19. But even in healthier people, uh, according to this study, factoring out those exact comorbidities and cofactors in disease, the vitamin D stood alone as an independent risk factor when your levels are too low for how your body's going to relate to and overcome COVID-19. So do you take vitamin D supplements and how much? Yes, I take vitamin D supplements because I work in an electric cave. Uh, I work like many people, you know, inside, not near a window, seeing patients all day long, many of them with COVID. Fortunately, this week, uh, a dramatic drop in the number of COVID patients we've had to treat. Uh, And so I know that I'm not getting enough vitamin D just because of my environmental exposure being so limited. I I do eat foods that are rich in vitamin D. That includes eggs. I eat salmon. I eat mushrooms. I don't do a lot of dairy, which is another source, and I don't do liver, uh, which is another source of vitamin D that people can include. And so uh, the way I do it, uh, this is not necessarily the right way for everybody because you have to measure your vitamin D levels, but I take a large amount of vitamin D, about 50,000 units, twice a month, 
uh, in order to keep my vitamin D levels, you know, in the range. I like to keep my patients' vitamin D levels between 50 and 80. Uh, this study suggested that anything less than 20 is uh, the most severe uh, vitamin D deficiency and with the highest risk. Anything over 40 uh, starts to bring your risk down of succumbing to COVID-19 or having a serious case of it uh, as it relates to that vitamin. Does the electric cave thing say a lot? I mean, do too many of us just not really go outside all that much and just think this is normal? Yes, and it's also dependent on other factors. So uh, this time of year, if you live anywhere north of Atlanta, uh, you're not going to get any vitamin D. Uh, the sun rays are just not strong enough, uh, even here in SoCal. Um, and a way to sort of, you know, gauge that um, is also by the time of day. So if you're going out early in the morning, or when I'm doing my exercise, which is typically at the end of my day, the sun rays, even in the summer, are going to be much less intense and much less likely to give me sufficient vitamin D. You then have to have enough skin exposure. You've got to have your arms out, your legs out, uh, not rubbing anything more than uh, sunscreen SPF 8 on your skin. Otherwise, you're not going to absorb vitamin D. And uh, if the, another easy way to sort of remember what time of day to get your vitamin D, if your shadow is longer than your height, that's not a time you're going to get any vitamin D. And this time of year, our shadows are often quite long because of the sun's rays and how they're coming through the environment, being that it's winter, uh, and during the early morning or, or in the early evening, uh, even in the summer, our shadows are longer than our height, and therefore we're not going to get enough vitamin D. I feel like a groundhog. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Did you see? How long was your shadow today, yeah. Gerald? Uh, Dr. Michael Hertz, director of the Center for Integrative Medicine. In Tarzana, Dr. Hurd, thanks. I predict two more months of winter. There he is. <laughs> yeah, All right. Wow. I predict we'll be back Monday.